Welcome back to this segment of Ask a Leader. My guest in this portion is Dr. Jennifer Fisher, a former dancer and actor. Jennifer Fisher has also had careers as a travel writer, film critic, magazine editor, television critic, and media commentator for Canadian Broadcasting Company Radio in Canada. In the 1990s, she made an unlikely comeback in the arena of performance appearing on the sidelines of Care of Ballet's Romeo and Juliet and La Bayadere, and later alongside Mikhail Baryshnikov in David Gordon's The Matter. She's taught both at York University and at Pomona College in Claremont and was for 10 years a regular contributor of dance writing at the L.A. Times. Her book that she published was Nutcracker Nation, How an Old World Ballet Became a Christmas Tradition in the New World and has recently published a Ballet Matters, a cultural memoir of dance dreams and empowering realities published by McFarland. her recent op-ed in the new york times you may have seen where she weighs in with how the chinese caricatures in dance persist dr jennifer fisher earned her master's degree in dance history and ethnography from york university in toronto before recompleting her phd in dance history and theory from the university of california riverside she holds the distinction of being the only self-appointed ballet coroner to hold regular inquests into the death of Giselle. jennifer fisher joins me in studio today welcome to ask a leader Thank you very much. It's good to be here. The point of our being together today is to direct listeners to an extraordinary exhibit of Donald McHale, an amazing career that he had throughout, both on performing arts centers and here as a choreographer and dancer at UCI. And there is an exhibit, as I said, at the Lang Uh, main central library on the UC Irvine campus and remind me again how long listeners have to see this into the next 2019. I think the exhibit's going to be up at Langston Library for about till the end of March. There is American College Dance Festival here on campus and we're hoping they will keep the exhibit open for those young dancers who are coming to UCI. So First, I'd like, Jennifer Fisher, I want to take a moment to give you my condolences because I know this is still, his passing was not that long ago, and so all of you have had to adjust to the absence of his very stellar and precious presence around the School of the Arts at UC Irvine. It's true. This is the first year that we've started the school year without Donald, and he ran his ensemble here from 1995. He was away very few uh, weeks during the time period he's been here, and we knew he had health issues, but he was directing his ensemble from a wheelchair as lively and creative as ever in his 80s, choreographing the most impactful dances as a social activist. So that was pretty difficult for us to start the school year. I mention it in all my classes. I tell the people who weren't lucky enough to have Donald as their teacher about him and try to keep his memory alive. So I would like for you 
to it's it's presented in the exhibit but if you as a dance historian could talk to the illustrious career that he had prior to his joining this academic institution and his very intentional aspect of his choreography over the years from through before the civil rights movement was in full bloom and beyond and all the way to the most contemporary of his choreographies that we have seen up till 2015 i believe it was Donald was born in 1930. It was really hard for most of us to realize how long he had been around, but he grew up in New York City. His parents uh, wanted him to get a very good education. His mother would use a relative's address to send him to the very best schools. And when he was, he saw dance when he was a youngster. In fact, he lived very close to Bill Bojangles Robinson, the tap dancer with Shirley Temple. He was a very famous personage in Harlem as Donald was growing up, and he used to tell the story of how all the kids in the neighborhood would gather and wait for Bill Bojangles Robinson to get home. And then he would dance up the few steps to his apartment building for them and tip his derby hat. So the idea that I was teaching next his office right next door to me, to someone who had met Bill Bojangles Robinson, to someone who saw Pearl Primus, a very outstanding modern dancer who was African-American, he saw her when he was 17 years old and just decided that's what he had to do. His parents are Jamaican immigrants. They, of course, want him to get a very good career. And as Donald used to say, they didn't know about dancing for a living. My mother said dancing was what you did to lively yourself up and not to make a living. But he kind of proved them wrong. So he was with a friend who was taking classes at the New Dance Group, which was a social activist group that was formed in around the 1920s, 30s. They were going strong, and they believed in dance for social activism, dance as a weapon in the class struggle. And I think it was there that he got a very eclectic education. So he was a beautiful dancer. You can see at the exhibit photos of him as a young man, as a sculpted, beautiful body. He learned very quickly And he was much desired by all of the new modern dancers in the downtown dance scene. But he got a very eclectic education and a real awareness of social justice issues at the new dance group. Where else could a young man of color start a career at the age of 17 and be encouraged in his choreography? He started choreographing when he was 17 years old to a poem, which was considered quite radical not music, but dancing to spoken word. But he always went his own way. And pretty soon he was making one of his first seminal works called Games, about children's games. And he was very much desired as a dancer, but as a creator, he grew in New York. He became very popular. He danced with the Martha Graham Dance Company. So he went on tour with them in the 1950s, and you'll be able to see his passport with all the stamps in it, all these artifacts that Scott Stone, has, our arts librarian, has gathered to try to give you an idea of what his life was like as a teacher, as a dancer, as a choreographer, and as a social activist. So Jennifer Fisher, what would you say was the outcome of a collaboration between 
Martha Graham and Donald McHale. Could you, could you, as a dance historian, see who influenced whom? Well, Martha Graham was a great figure of the 20th century. She knew what she was doing. She was quite a diva. But Donald learned to dance for Martha Graham. I'm sure he had very little input whatsoever except to become the beautiful body on which her choreography appeared. But he was able to watch Graham and a lot of other choreographers of the era and also decide who he would be. So a lot of white American women and men really controlled modern dance. There were African-American figures like Pearl Primus and Catherine Dunham, and they were doing Afro-Caribbean kinds of dance. But when he learned, he learned Bharatnatyam from uh, what they called Hindu dance back then. He might have learned hula, he learned ballet, he learned Irish dance. So he had a very eclectic kind of education. And then he started bringing into his choreography his own experience. So the idea of putting games, the uh, games on sidewalks that African-American children played, he brought his background, his awareness of the oppression. He reaches the civil rights era, and then he is very much aware of what you can do with a dancing body on stage. So when he made his work Rainbow Round My Shoulder, which is a seminal work of his, he started having his own voice. He used a series of men, six men, I think, linking arms as if they're on a chain gang. And I know growing up in white America that when I first saw that dance, it's a beautiful dance, but I thought, why did he have to make it about prisoners? I really don't get that. Aren't prisoners people who did something wrong? Am I supposed to respect men who are in prison? It was long before I understood that African-American men were often, as we know now, arrested for walking while black, arrested for looking the wrong way, in unfairly imprisoned. He really told me that through Dancing Bodies. So that was his activism, is that he showed that men who had been arrested, maybe unfairly, but even if they had done something wrong, that they were human beings and that we saw the heart and soul of people as they danced. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And my guest today is Jennifer Fisher. She is a dance historian, and we're talking about Donald McHale's exhibition of honoring his memory in dance, both in performing arts venues around the world with his style, tapping into all kinds of traditions and intentional political commentary. And I want for Jennifer Fisher to tell us what she saw and how he's able to make a transition from the performing arts to an academic aspect and continuing his performing arts, collaborating with faculty, with students, with researchers and the like. I think one of the most important things in Donald's life, he would have said, he said many times, were his students. He learned a lot from his students. One of his last, he dictated a statement when he was going to leave UCI the year that he died. And he said that he would miss most working with his students. He worked with professionals. He had works on Broadway, Raisin, Sophisticated Ladies. He did this wonderful scene you can see in Disney's Bedknobs and Broomsticks when uh, for the movies. 
He was on The Cosby Show and danced with Diana Ross on variety shows. He had this multifaceted career as a professional. And then he did all his choreographies on Alvin Ailey Company and Dayton Contemporary. He worked with a lot of companies uh, around the world. He was invited to Paris to give master classes. And I think he found a home at the university because it was where he had what we would consider maybe a laboratory. He had an etude ensemble from 1995 using students here, and he would work with them, get feedback from them, coach them, make them into better artists, and then take the works he's been making year after year here at UCI and stage them on professional companies. He got used to being a full-service professor. He did committee work. He wrote recommendation letters. He had to go to boring meetings or interesting meetings at times. And he invited everyone in to watch him work. I watched him coach his students, students who were 18, 20 years old, who didn't know anything much about the life he was choreographing about. He made them into artists. He brought out their finer qualities. He taught them about social justice issues. During the civil rights movement, his choreography was really as important, one historian, Rebecca Cole, has written, as sit-ins, as other official protests, as bus boycotts. He was on stage talking about inequities, not just towards African Americans. His later work in the last few years has been about migrant farm workers, Syrian refugees. He was about to make a work on climate change because he constantly watched the news. And dancing bodies were the way he communicated the ideas about the fact that all people were human beings and you should respect and have empathy for all people. Part of what he wanted to do with his dance was not just to entertain, because he could be tremendously entertaining in a lot of his work, but also to speak about how we all have universal human rights. One thing I'm struck by at the exhibit, and I hope that anybody visiting is going to have the benefit of somebody who's knowing about his career. Who, I mean, when I was there, I was able to be one of your colleagues who could put in context what's there. And what I, one of the takeaways from this exhibit is on UC Irvine's campus, we walk amidst greatness. And Donald McHale is the greatness in the Claire Trevor School of the Arts. And I, I wanted to ask about the 9-11 piece, what was titled, and I wanted to just comment a little bit about what that came from me. I don't think that's represented at the exhibit, but it's, uh, again, as the monument Don McHale is represented otherwise. That piece was called Ash, and he choreographed it before it was known how dangerous ashes were going to be to the first responders uh, who survived, to people who were working on the site. He also did a piece on Huntington's disease, because the organization asked him, and that piece has not been done again. It's extraordinary that he was able to take one of his leading dancers and make him into a, a Woody Guthrie-like character because Donald knew Woody Guthrie when he had Huntington's disease. And 
he made this piece and then invited people trying to raise money for research. And it was extraordinary the way he could take a tragedy, a topic, and embody it in a way that everyone could relate to. Because you can read about diseases, you can read about the tragedy of 9-11, about the plight of Syrian refugees, but when you see it embodied on stage, Donald was able to bring the empathy of the human body using music and choreography to speak to your soul. Jennifer Fisher, do you have any kinds of experiences of patrons taking in the exhibit since it's been in there. It's been about a full month now. Did you have anything to relate to us, either you showing people around or you're casually sort of taking in what people are independently taking in? I love the fact that they like the smallest things in the exhibit. And Scott Stone, when he took me around, he's the librarian who made a lot of choices. And he pointed out he uses a lot of contact sheets, uh, which have pictures of Donald dancing and photographs of him. There's one of him where he looks about 12 years old, and you can get an impish kind of image of Donald. I think one of my favorite things in the exhibit that many people comment on is a huge card that dancers made after he'd worked with them, and he got dozens, hundreds maybe of these cards, some of which were in his office next door to me. And there are many notes scribbled in different languages on the card, all fitted in uh, handmade artwork on the front. And all of these people, if you look at bits of what they wrote, it is like, I will never forget this experience. You brought things out in me I never knew I had. And the humanistic relationship he had with his students, with his dancers, with professional dancers comes through when you see that. There are people who watch. There's a video of some of his work, and people will just stand and say, I never saw that. And um, pictures of him teaching when he was robust, uh, six feet tall or more, because he was in a wheelchair the last years of his life. The students are able to see this breadth of a career from the time he was a young dancer, which is what they are now, and they love to see that. And they see the hat he had in high school with these political buttons on it, these artifacts and sketches he had. They can relate to him as a choreographer. And all of the awards that he had, all of being declared one of America's first 100 dance treasures, he really spanned the breadth of a man who was born during Jim Crow, who was auditioning at a time when there were signs that said no Negroes allowed, lived through the civil rights movement, choreographed about the African-American experience, then took that experience to talk for other oppressed people up until almost the day he died. We thought he would die in the studio, very nearly did. It was only a few months. Um, he'd gotten sick, he got pneumonia. He would still have been making work if he'd been able. That is lovely. Jennifer Fisher is here to talk about Donald McHale's exhibit at the UCI Student Center Langson Library. The exhibit's called Donald McHale Dancing for All Time, a retrospective exhibition on the late life of distinguished professor and dance. Jennifer Fisher, thank you for giving this knowing and loving, nuanced, grounded, commemorative memory of him. Thank you so much for coming on Ask a Leader today. Thank you. I'm happy to.